We are uh, picking up the story of Abraham now in uh, chapter 19 of Genesis, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the beginning of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But before we get to that, let's back up for a bit. We uh, spent the last two or three weeks or so in chapter 18 and looking at Abraham's encounter with the Lord and these two angels in chapter 18. And uh, uh, let's go back and think for a minute. What do you remember that we've talked about, particularly last week, uh, from chapter 18? I think the main thing that I remember is that the Lord knows how to save His people. He can deliver them. He doesn't treat the way they like to He knows how to save them. That's pretty encouraging to know, isn't it? You know, Abraham lived all these many years as a, you know, as a as a wanderer, as a as an alien in the land of promise, in a strange land, and and he never saw the promise, and and so the question really comes to Abraham in pretty full force at this point: Is God going to treat the righteous like the wicked, or or is there going to be some is there going to be some benefit from me having lived a life sacrificially? for the Lord all these many years. And that's the issue that he's wrestling with there. What else? Yeah. You know, I think about that. I think, isn't God concerned about his own reputation? And of course he is. But it's interesting in situations like this where he, where he tests us to see as, are we as concerned about his reputation as he is? And, and, and that is obviously one of the things that Abraham was wrestling with. Somebody up here. I was thinking, uh, Psalm 25, I think, is talking about Abraham and talking about the secret counsel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And other things in there about God revealing himself. I just thought, it almost seems like God is drawing him into intercession. Oh, yeah. And the same way he did Moses, and he said, you know, I'll wipe him out and make yeah. a great nation. Yeah. And Moses said no. And there are other instances I got to think in the Bible about that, where God just uses things to teach us how to intercede and more about himself. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and to me, one of, the, one of the greatest enigmas, one of the greatest puzzles in the Christian life is prayer. You know, just... The whole idea of prayer and why pray, you know, it's just a great, in some ways it's a great mystery, but it's so clear that God wants us to do it. And, and like you say here, he's, he's drawing Abraham into prayer. And that's part of the point I was trying to make last week uh, when he says uh, right there uh, uh, at that one point where, uh, where the Lord says, uh, if, if the outcry is not what I've heard, I will know. And it's like he's setting Abraham up at that point to pray. He's raising in Abraham's mind the specter of the possibility that there may be more righteous in Sodom than he, than he knows about. And so that prompts Abraham then to begin to pray, Lord, maybe there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you save the city? So, he, yeah, I think he's really, he's really trying to push Abraham towards intercession and towards prayer. Yes? God's relationship with Abraham is so tight that he was willing to let him know what's about to happen. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? 
and, and later in the prophets, at one point in the prophets, the Lord says he doesn't do anything without revealing it to his prophets. You know, God just... That's one of the things we talked about last week. God is a self-revealing God. He's a self-disclosing God. And He wants to reveal Himself. And He wants to disclose Himself. And He wants us to know Him. And He wants us to know what He's thinking about. And He wants us to know what His plans are. And, boy, you can't read through the Scriptures and not see that over and over again. That's God's passion is for us to know Him. You know, And that's what a true friendship is. A friendship is a, is a, is a mutual disclosure of ourselves to one another. And, and if we're going to be friends of God, then, then we should expect not only does God want to hear what we have to say, but that He has much to say to us about Himself. What else? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Boy, isn't that the truth? Is there anything too hard? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord to do? Yeah. Well, that's good. You're you're thinking and remembering things we talked about last week. But this week, we're going to move on into, as I said, chapter 19 and the story, the actual story of the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and of course, it's... Uh, it's one of the probably the least pleasant passages in all of Scripture. Uh, it's not one that we immediately would turn to for encouragement. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it's a very difficult passage. There are difficult implications in the passage. Uh, it is an incident that is referred to several times again in Scripture. And, and Scripture looks back on this incident. So it is a very important incident in Scripture, a very important narrative for us to understand. Uh, and so we want to take time uh, to really uh, understand it. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's read, let's read the first uh, 11 verses or so, and then I'll go on with my, my introductory thoughts, and we'll go on from there. So let's pick it up in chapter 19 and verse 1. You remember at the end of chapter 18 that the Lord and the two angels have separated. The Lord stayed to carry on his conversation with Abraham and the two angels went on towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says in 19.1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise and go early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. 
Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came to us as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both the small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Well, as I said, it's not a very pleasant, <coughs> not a very pleasant picture and it's not a very pleasant passage uh, for us to have to wrestle with, but it is an important passage. And I think it's important for us to understand that this story that we're looking at today and the, and the rest of chapter 19 as it unfolds was not written for us so that we could sit here and cluck our tongues and shake our heads and say like the Pharisee that the Lord talked about in, in the Gospels, Lord, I'm glad that I'm not like them. There's really much more to this passage than that. Okay. Well, I, I hope it's not our present. <laughs> so, so, so clearly, this passage, I think, is given to us, uh, certainly as an admonition and a warning, but I think it's given to us as a mirror. I'm reminded of what, what James says when he says, uh, you know, when you, when you go to the Scriptures, do you, do, you, do you, you know, like a man, are you like the man who goes and he looks at himself in the mirror and then he walks away and he forgets what kind of a person he is? And, I, and the thing that struck me as I studied this passage uh, and prepared this passage is, is how much of this passage, both the story of the Sodomites and the story of Lot himself, speaks to me and speaks to my own personal relationship with God and the way I live my life and the way I have lived my life in the past. So, so as we reflect on this passage, it's a passage for us to think about uh, not only the possibilities of the extent of evil among the wicked, but as a real lesson to us as believers and as individuals and what, the, what choices are we making in our lives and what uh, and how are we living our lives and what are the repercussions of the choices that we're making every day in our lives. And so those are the, some of the things we want to think about as we go forward uh, in the passage. Uh, of course, as the passage unfolds, these two angels arrive in Sodom. And, and one of the things that most of the commentators make a point of uh, as they move into chapter 19 is the stark contrast between chapter 19 and chapter 18. We have two, uh, you can't imagine two more radically different scenes than the scene in chapter 18 and the scene in chapter 19. The scene in chapter 18 is this kind of beautiful, pastoral, quiet, reverent scene of Abraham, his tents, the oaks of memory, uh, that beautiful pastoral scene, and, and the men come, and he extends hospitality, and they come, and they eat in front of his tent, and they bring this wonderful good news about about Abraham's future and Sarah's future. It's just a, it's a beautiful picture and it's a beautiful scene. And then we move into chapter 19 and there are some similarities. You have, again, messengers of the Lord coming uh, to a man of God, to a righteous man, as we'll see that, that Lot was. And, uh, 
and uh, they come bearing a message. They come bearing information to them about the future and about what God intends to do. And yet the scene is so radically different. Instead of this kind of beautiful, pastoral, rural, reverent, quiet, holy scene of Abraham's tent by the Oaks of Mamre, you have this this very urbanized, very city-like scene. And uh, instead of the middle of the day, it's at night. It's dark. And it's a very dark, dark time. And of course, it involves uh, a city where there is so much wickedness. And it involves a man who, while he is in fact righteous, as we'll see and we'll talk about today, is a righteous man and he exhibits that righteousness. He is a man who is very, very deeply flawed in his relationship with God. And, and so we'll, we'll think about that and reflect on that. So it's just a, just a remarkable contrast between what we saw there in chapter 18, that beautiful scene all the way through chapter 18, and what we're going to be looking at now in chapter 19. <clears throat> so as the story begins to unfold here in verse 1, these two angels come, it says, in the evening to the city of Sodom. <clears throat> and... Uh, we remember, of course, that they are angels. He points out to us that they are angels. This is really the first time in the story that, we, that they are specifically identified as angels. They've been called men up to this point, and they'll be called men again later in the chapter. But it's clear that these are angels who have taken on human form. Okay? So these two angels now come to the city, and they come in the evening. Now we remember that they came to Abraham at what time of the day? Pardon? Uh, no? In the heat of the day, at midday. Okay, so it's presumably right after Abraham's lunch. So it was, he was, he, Abraham was sitting in his tent in the middle of the day. Now, that's about 20 miles from the Oaks of Mamre to the, to the south end of the Dead Sea where Sodom is located. Okay, so it's about a 20-mile journey. They've already come to Abraham in the middle of the day and they've eaten a meal and they spent this time with Abraham and then they get up to leave. Now, I don't know about how many of you guys can walk 20 miles in the heat of the day. And I don't know how many of you could walk it very fast. But I gather that these guys didn't walk the whole way. (laughs) Remember, they're angels. So they leave Abraham and they're walking away and they leave. And then Abraham and the Lord stay there. And then by by evening, they're already in Sodom. So I I take it they just kind of showed up there. Okay, so they come to Sodom. And uh, and uh, as they come to Sodom, they're they're uh, the first one to see him, of course, is Lot. But before we get into that, we need to stop and think a little bit about the city of Sodom and what we know about it. And when I speak of Sodom, it's it's really the judgment of God is falling not only on Sodom, but on Gomorrah as well. And was originally intended also to fall on the other cities, uh, the other of, of the five cities of the plain that we identified in chapter 14. Particularly, it was also intended to fall on the little city of Zor. But we'll find out as the passage unfolds why God's judgment does not fall on Zor. But it falls primarily on Sodom and Gomorrah. So as I'm describing to you Sodom, uh, my point is, as I'm describing Sodom to you, I'm describing basically that whole region, Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole region there at the southern end of the Jordan River there uh, at where, where now we have the Dead Sea. Okay. The scriptures uh, unfold a, a, a pretty expansive picture of the story of Sodom and the, and, and the city of Sodom. And, and the problem is oftentimes when, when somebody mentions Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the first thing we think about? Evil and destruction. Evil and destruction and, but when you're thinking of the character of the city, what do you think about? 
wickedness specifically? Come on, somebody. Homosexuality. Okay, let's say it. Let's get it out in the open. Okay. One of the primary things we think of is homosexuality. That's uh, and that, in fact, is why one of the terms that we use for the term or for to identify homosexuality is the term sodomy. Okay, comes from the city of Sodom. Okay, that's how we think typically of the city of Sodom and, of course, the city of Gomorrah. But that really is a very limited picture of the city. Okay, the story of Sodom is much broader than just the problem of homosexuality. And as, this, as the picture of Sodom unfolds throughout Scripture, we see that, that this was just a very exceedingly wicked city. And that the homosexuality, the, the, the sodomy of the city of Sodom, was, was really just a part of the totality of the wickedness of the city. Our first encounter with Sodom, of course, was when Lot first moved over in that neighborhood. Remember in chapter 13, when Abraham and Lot split up because they were, they were, too, they were getting too big. They were both so wealthy and they had so many cattle and, and camels and all kinds of things. And their herdsmen were quarreling. So they had to separate and they had to go their separate ways. So Abraham said to Lot, now you pick wherever you want to go. You go one way, I'll go the other way. Lot could have gone anywhere. He could have gone north, he could have gone south, he could have gone east, he could go west. But he chose to go east, he chose to go down into the valley because it was so luxurious and so rich and, and fertile a place, okay? But the problem was that there were cities down there, okay? And the problem was not so much that they were cities, but, <clears throat> but the characteristic of those cities. And in chapter 13, it identifies Sodom as a place, I think it's in verse 13 of chapter 13, it identifies Sodom as a place of exceeding wickedness. Okay. Of exceeding wickedness. Well, then, of course, we have this encounter here in chapter 19 where the predominant characteristic that stands out to us as we read the story is, is this uh, problem of their sexual perversion. Okay. But as we go forward on through the story of Scripture, we get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. As those prophets then are prophesying to Israel and to the people of Israel, they oftentimes go back and compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in doing so, we discover a whole lot more about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than we really discovered in the book of Genesis. And that is that, that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are characterized by just all kinds of, uh, of characteristics. Uh, uh, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16 in verses 49 and 50 and we won't take time to go and actually look at the verse but there's a whole list of characteristics there that he mentions about the city of Sodom he mentions their arrogance he mentions the fact that they are exceedingly wealthy or abundant and, and that leads them into what he calls a careless ease so they are living they're arrogant they're very prosperous and this prosperity that they have has led them into this carelessness, moral carelessness that they live in because life is so easy for them. Uh, they are indifferent to the needs of the poor and the needy and the weak and the sick and those kinds of people among them. Uh, and they are characterized by numerous abominations, which presumably includes uh, adultery and sexual perversion and things like that. Jeremiah talks about their adultery, their lying, their falsehood, uh, the fact that they oftentimes abet or aid the wicked. Okay? Isaiah talks about their injustice and their ruthlessness and their oppression. Okay? 
So when we get this broader picture of the city of Sodom, we understand that the, the predominant thing that we see here in chapter 19, their sexual perversion is only one element of their wickedness. Okay. And it's not only their homosexuality and their sexual perversion that, that God is judging, but it's the totality of their wickedness that God is judging. And in fact, I would suggest to you that, that the homosexuality that we see manifested here in chapter 19 is really more a, a sign of their wickedness than the primary or predominant wickedness of the city. Okay? And the reason I say that is because uh, I mean, you might just take a moment to look at this. Go over to Romans chapter 1. Uh, and, and, and we discover something about this whole issue of homosexuality. He says, uh, he's talking about the wicked. He's talking about uh, the, the Gentile uh, unsaved. Beginning in verse uh, 24, he says, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. Uh, well, let me back up a bit. Uh, uh, go to verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So he's talking about how uh, even though they had known God and God had been revealed to them in creation, they had rejected that knowledge uh, and professing to be wise, they became fools and they made idols and that sort of thing. Uh, and so then it says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. So in other words, the degrading passions are something that God has given them over to as a judgment on them for their idolatry and for their rejection of him. Okay? So, in one sense, the degrading passions, while they in themselves are sin, they are also a manifestation of the judgment of God. That God gives people over because of their wickedness and because of their sin, he gives them over to be consumed and destroyed by even greater sin in their life. And that's the story that unfolds here in Romans. God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and of woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so, so the point I'm trying to make is that, is that what's unfolding before us in chapter 9 of Genesis is evidence that God is already judging Sodom and Gomorrah. God has already turned these idol worshipers who have denied the true and living God and made idols for themselves. He has already turned them over to their wickedness. He's already judging their wickedness in the hopes that they would see their depravity and see their suffering and see their wickedness and turn to him. But of course, they have not done so. And so ultimately, it becomes necessary for God to come in with further judgment. Okay? So, so this is the picture we get as these two messengers from the Holy of Holies come to the gate of this particular city. This is the city they're coming to. This is the place to which they're coming. And when they come there, what's the first thing they encounter? They encounter Lot. Okay, so Lot is sitting at the gate, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But 
But I want to take some time for us to clearly understand this guy Lot. Because it's very easy for us to develop our assessment of Lot based on all the mistakes that he's made. And as we'll see, he's made a whole catalog of them. Okay? He's made a bunch. But we've already talked about this before. In, in Peter, in, in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man with a righteous soul whose righteous soul was vexed when he saw the wickedness that was around him. Okay. And so when we get to second when we get to first Peter, when we read that about we read that about Lot, we might pause and go, Peter, where in the world did you get that? <laughs> That's not the picture of Lot that I get as I read the story. Well, that's because we're really looking at the wrong things. I'm convinced that Peter gets his picture of Lot as a righteous man with a righteous soul vexed every day as he watches the wickedness of the city. I'm convinced he gets that picture of Lot from Genesis 19. Because as the story unfolds in Genesis 19, we discover that Lot really was a righteous man. Okay. Now, you're going to have to bear with me here, but this is clearly the testimony of Scripture. And there are two things particularly that stand out about Lot as the story unfolds here in chapter 19. And one is the remarkable similarity between Lot's response to these strangers who show up at the gate to the response that Abraham gave in chapter 18 when they showed up at the Oaks of Mamre. Okay. Now, it's, I'll acknowledge that there are a number of commentators who like to point out the differences between how Abraham responded and how Lot responded. Okay. But I think that that's, personally, as I study the passage, I think that's kind of stretching a little bit. I think what's striking to me more is the similarities than what minor or subtle differences there might be between how Abraham and how Lot responded. Some make a big thing out of the he only provided them with unleavened bread. Well, he provided them with unleavened bread because he was in a hurry and he didn't have time for the bread to rise. Okay, and so so I don't think the lesson here is in the distinctions between Abraham and Lot and how they responded to these strangers, but in the similarities. Because when Lot or when Abraham first saw these strangers, he got up, he ran to them, he bowed down to the earth, he invited them to his home, he invited them, he wanted to feed them and and provide for them and then send them on the way. And that's almost identical to the response that we have with Lot. Lot gets up as soon as he sees these men, he goes to them to meet them. He doesn't run, but I don't know that that's a significant thing. But he goes to meet them. He falls on his face before them. He calls them or he refers to them. He doesn't refer to them as lords, but he refers to himself as their servant. He says, would you come into your servant's house? So we get this this beautiful picture again, like we had of Abraham in chapter 18. We get this beautiful picture of this very hospitable, gracious man. Okay. Now, we read that, and, and culturally it seems a little weird to us because we don't do this with strangers anymore, okay? But, but we need to remember the context of the times, and we need to need, remember the context of the ancient Near East. How important this issue of hospitality is. And throughout Scripture, how important this issue of hospitality is. 
Now, hospitality is kind of a nice thing we do in our culture nowadays. You know, when we talk about somebody that's hospitable, you know, they like to open up their home and entertain people or whatever. And it's, and it's a nice thing. But we don't think of it the way it was that it's really understood throughout Scripture and was particularly understood in the ancient Near East. And that is that this was, a, this was one of the things of, of highest value. And, and that finds its roots in the character of God. It's, as, as we mentioned, the word, the word in the New Testament comes from the word to be a lover of strangers. Okay? And, and, and when we think about it in that terms of hospitality as being a lover of strangers, then we, then we understand why it's such an important thing to God. Hospitality is the characteristic of Christ. And being hospitable is being Christ-like. It's being one who loves strangers. Okay? And it's not just being hospitable to our friends and those who can return the favor, as the Scripture says, but it's being a friend of strangers who cannot or who are not in a place to return the favor. Okay? And so what's striking to us about Abraham's response and Lot's response is that these guys are exhibiting the character of God. That they are a lover of strangers and that they are caring for the needy and for the vulnerable in their society. So here come these two strangers to their door. Uh, and in, in Lot's case, they come to the gate of the city. And Lot immediately is concerned for the well-being of these guys. He's concerned that they get rest. He's concerned that they be fed. He's concerned that they have a place to wash their feet. And of course, also, he's clearly concerned, although it's not stated overtly, he's clearly concerned for their physical safety because he knows that this city is a very dangerous city. And so we have this, this expression in the heart of Lot, of this love of strangers, which is, which is a characteristic of God. And, and, and it's even more pronounced, because even though it's, it's a godly characteristic of the thing that's commanded and enjoined on us throughout Scripture, this need to be a lover of strangers, uh, it was also a cultural thing, so that within the culture, typically, people were quite hospitable. And so that makes it even more striking how inhospitable the city of Sodom was. So, while the Canaanites were a pretty perverted race of people, and, and God had a lot to say about them, and ultimately he had to drive them out of the land with the Israelites. Uh, so, even though this, the, the culture is, is, or, or the, the region is a fairly wicked place, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah are even more so because they don't even exhibit the typical cultural habit of hospitality here. The response of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to these strangers is, is this characteristic that we see in, in, in the Lord's description of them in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel of, being, uh, of disregarding the poor, disregarding the needy, disregarding uh, those who are vulnerable in the culture. Were you going to make a point? Would you say would be what? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that's clearly what we see here with the sodomites. They're totally obsessed with themselves and with what they want. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we see in Lot this man who exhibits the character of God and this love and concern for strangers. Okay. The second thing about Lot is it becomes clear as the story unfolds that this guy has never stooped to this level of depravity that everybody around him has stooped to. Okay. 
when when he has this confrontation with the men of the city at his door, and they and they uh, they they make the typical response of the wicked when you point out their wickedness, they go, "Who are you to judge me? You know, judge not, lest you be judged." You know, that's the way the wicked always respond. You know, that's the way I respond when I'm being wrong and somebody points it out. You know, my first response, my gut level response in the flesh is, "Who are you? who made you a judge?" Instead of going. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I protest that they be my judge. OK, well, they do make that accusation and that response to him. But the, but there's one thing that's noticeably absent in their response. They don't accuse a lot of hypocrisy. They don't say to lot. Well, who are you to judge us? You do this same thing. And the reason they don't do that is because Lot, even though now he has lived in the environs and even inside the city of Sodom for lo these 15 years or so, he has never stooped to their level. In other words, Lot has drawn a moral line in the sand over which he will not cross. And we're going to take a few minutes here in a moment to talk about all the compromises that Lot has made. But one thing is clear that Lot drew a line in the sand and he said, I'm not going there. That's wickedness. I'm not going to do that. And, and it's pretty clear that the people of Sodom understood that about Lot. Because when they came to his door, they didn't ask for Lot. They asked for the men in his house. They knew Lot doesn't do that. And the suggestion of committing homosexual acts with Lot only arises as a threat against Lot. But it's not something they would normally expect Lot to do. Because Lot has drawn, drawn a line in the sand. He has said, this is wicked and I will not do this. Now, I think it's very important and the reason I wanted to talk about the righteousness of Lot first before we go on in this story. I think it's very important for us to understand the righteousness of Lot. Because we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to beat up on Lot pretty good. Okay? He's given us a lot to beat up on him about. Okay, So we're going to beat up on him pretty good. And, and the, the hazard in approaching this passage and not looking and understanding the righteousness of Lot is that we can fall into the mistake of thinking that people like Lot, like Lot are like Lot only because they're not righteous people. And to miss the obvious lesson of the story, which is possible for people whom Scripture testifies to be righteous, to also make some very tragic, sinful mistakes. And if I dismiss the idea of the righteousness of Lot, then I, then I lose the impact of the lesson of Lot in my life that I could be like Lot. That even though I'm a man of God and that I believe the Bible and I, and I profess uh, faith in Christ and I have certain standards, I've drawn certain lines in the, stand, in the sand, uh, that all that may be true and I may still make some very tragic sinful, wicked decisions in my life which may have devastating consequences on the lives of others. And in the case of Lot, and in my case perhaps even perhaps my own family. 
And so, it's important for us to understand that the Scripture regards Lot as righteous so that we will not dismiss the example that he is to us and the warning that his life is to us of the possibility of Christians, real born-again Christians, doing the kind of things that Lot does. Well, so the men come to the city and they encounter uh, this wicked city and they encounter this guy Lot. And where do we find Lot? Where is he as the story begins? Pardon? He's sitting in the gate of the city. Okay. Now, when we first started the story of Abraham, where was Lot? Okay, he was with Abraham and Haran. And Abraham said, God came to me and he spoke to me and he promised me a land and he promised me this and he promised me that. And Lot said, I want to be part of that. And he packed up his bags and he went with his uncle, knowing not where he was going, just following the promise of God. That's where he started. And now we find Lot, and this isn't the end of his story, but now we find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, how did Lot get from there to here? Well, he made a, he made a series of compromises in his life. And, and perhaps each step of compromise, each decision he made seemed little and insignificant of itself but when you add them all up together, they have a devastating effect on him, on his wife, on his precious little girls, and on the lives of so many others. Because he starts out and, and then things get, things get, you know, he gets wealthy and he gets prosperous and he's doing really well. And somehow his focus goes from the promise of God and from, from being a even a beneficiary of the blessing that's on his uncle, his eyes get shifted from that to, to just making a little more money. And so when Abraham says to him, he says, well, we've got to separate because we're getting so big. And he says, you go wherever you want to go. Where does he go? He goes to the east. He goes away from the presence of God. And he goes down into the cities of the plain and he camps near Sodom. And that's the last we see of him until the next chapter. And the next chapter, chapter 14, is the story of the War of the Kings. And Abraham gets involved in the War of the Kings. Why? Because they took Lot. Because <laughs> these four Mesopotamian kings, when they came down and they captured those various cities, and there were a number of cities around there uh, on the King's Highway that they captured... Uh, and, and eventually they came and they captured Sodom and they captured all the people around and, and they captured Lot in chapter 14 it says because Lot was living in Sodom so Lot is no longer camped now near the city but he's actually living in the city okay which means he's not only moved into the city but he sold the tent and he's bought a nice house with a white picket fence I mean it all made sense right it was a prosperous place. The valley was a great place to raise your cattle because it was lush and green and beautiful. And it just made good economic sense to go there. 
But when he went there, he took with him his little tiny girls. Now, by the time we get to this point in the story, they're marrying age, as we'll see in the next uh, passage. Okay, next part of the passage. So they're now grown and they're ready to get married. Okay, but but when he moved to Sodom 15 years earlier, they were just little girls. And he wasn't worried about their safety and he wasn't worried about the influence on them. He was just concerned that this was a chance to make some money. And so he moved down there. And then we find that he realizes after a while, well, you know, why am I living in this tent? I'm going to be here a while. You know, might as well invest in a little real estate. And the thing that's striking to me about these decisions that Lot's making is I have no doubt Abraham had the opportunity to make all the same decisions. But where do we find Lot living at the end of his life? He's still living in a tent. In land that is loaned to him. And his entire life, the Scripture testifies, he lived as an alien and a stranger. And the thing Lot didn't want to do is he didn't want to live as an alien and a stranger. I don't like being an alien and a stranger. Do you? I don't like being an alien and a stranger in this world. I want to put down roots. I want to buy a house. I want to live comfortably. I want to live at ease like the people of Sodom live at ease. And there's nothing wrong with being at ease and, and, and there's nothing wrong with buying a house. But it's what are the compromises that we have to make in order to do those things, okay? And the compromises that Lot had to do to make those things was to put his family in jeopardy and his own life in jeopardy and his own morals in jeopardy. And so he makes these series of decisions and he goes first from living near the blessing of God and the promise of God, albeit living in a tent, and he goes and then he's living in the valley near Sodom. And the next thing we find, he's living in the city in chapter 14. And he, you know, and he doesn't take it. He doesn't get a lesson from what happens there with the war of the kings. And he goes back to living in the city again. And so now we find him 15 years later. He's still there. But now he's in the gate. What's the significance of that? Pardon? He's one of the leaders. The gates there in the ancient Near Eastern cities, the walled cities of the ancient Near East, were these large structures, okay? Usually an arched structure, an arched, arched enclosure, okay? They were quite large and there was room for, you know, for all the business and stuff that had to go in and out of the city to go through these gates, okay? And, and they would often, it would be a large archway structure. Oftentimes there would be, and it would be deep, it would be uh, some uh, depth, depth to it. And oftentimes there would even be anterooms off to the side and there would be seats in the gate, okay? And the leaders of the city, the elders of the city and the wealthy of the city, they would come and they would sit in the gate. And it was in the gate where the business transactions were taken, okay? So, for example, in the story of Ruth, when Boaz needs to make these negotiations regarding Ruth. Where does he go? He goes to the gate of the city, okay? And he engages in this business training. He looks for witnesses and, t and people who can testify to this transaction. So he goes to the gate of the city. We find that the gate of the city was a place where business was transacted. The gate of the city was also a place where judgment was rendered. So the elders would sit there in the, in, the, in the seats in the gate and if somebody had a dispute with somebody else, they would go to the gate of the city and they would go to the elders and they would ask them to resolve this dispute that they had. Okay? 
So the gate of the city is this very significant place where the elders and the leaders and the influential of the people would sit. And this is where we find Lot sitting in the gate of the city. So he has not only now moved into the city, but he has, degree, he has achieved some degree of respect and some degree of influence in the city. Not nearly as much as he thinks. And not nearly, not certainly not in the area where he needs to be influential. But he has gained some influence in the city. And so... Uh, one, one of the reasons, I might mention this just in passing, one of the reasons he's probably gained this influence is because 15 years earlier, the city was rescued because of Lot's uncle. You know? So the city really owed him a little bit. So they throw him a little bit of meat and they say, well, you can sit in the gate and, you know, and we'll confer with you if we have business to say. Well, he's also very wealthy. And he's extremely well, wealthy, yes. You know, people who are not godly, the wealth is the most convincing Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's quite wealthy, and uh, and they owe him one. So so he finds himself sitting in the gate of the city, and 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 he comes. Uh, these uh, angels of the Lord then come, and they find him there in the gate of the city. And we have unfolding then this very one terrible night in the city of Sodom. It's almost incomprehensible to contemplate the agonizing, terrifying experience of Lot on this terrible night. These men come to the gate of the city and, and, and he's immediately struck with fear. Not fear of these men, he doesn't even know they're angels. They're just men to him. This is probably the passage that that is referred to in the, that the New Testament is referring to when it speaks of entertaining angels without knowing it. It's probably talking about Lot that he entertained angels here without knowing it because of his hospitality. Lot is used there as an example for us of hospitality. Okay. So he probably doesn't know their angels, almost certainly doesn't know their angels, but they're just men passing by. And his heart is immediately struck with fear for their well-being. And so he goes to them and he asks them to come and spend the night in his home. And, and they just say, well, no, we're going to go spend the night in the square. I mean, that's, you know, that's what you, you know, was a typical thing you did if you couldn't find a place to stay. I mean, the climate there would allow for that kind of thing. And so they're just going to spend the night in the square. A lot knows that's not safe. Now, I don't know that he tells the men, these two men, whom he thinks are men, uh, that uh, it's not safe. But it says he pressed them. He urged them strongly. It's interesting. It's the very same Hebrew word that's used in verse 10 when it talks about the men pressing against Lot there at the door. So he, he put a lot of pressure on them. He said, no, you, you can't do You've got to come into my house. You've got to come to my place. And, and I'll make it good. You can sleep. You can get refreshed. You can take a bath. You can you know, give you something to eat. Come on. You come to my house. And he pressed them. And he got them to come to his house. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, it says, both young and old, all the people from every quarter came and surrounded the house. And this is kind of like Lot's worst nightmare. 
is unfolding before him. And they call out to him and they say, Lot, where are these guys that came to you tonight? Bring them out. We want to have relations with them. We want to have sex with them. Now, I know it's a very ugly picture. It's not very nice to talk about. But I just keep thinking about Lot. And I think, Lot, how did, how did you get here? How did you get to this place where you're where you're cowering in your living room with a violent mob outside your door threatening to rape your visitors. How did you get here? He got there one compromise at a time. One small, seemingly innocent decision at a time where he chose his own comfort and his own pleasure and his own ease or his own entertainment over the promise of God. And one decision at a time, he moves closer and closer and closer and closer to Sodom. You know, and I don't know if you've had experiences like this in your life. I mean, probably nothing quite this dramatic, but how oftentimes we find ourselves in that moment of crisis and we go, how did I get here? How did this happen to me? And the lesson of Scripture, the mirror that Scripture is holding up to us today, that we would look at this mirror and we would observe what we are and walk away changed people, is that we would see the cost of compromise. We would see what happens when we, when we, when we make those little decisions that they don't seem so significant, but when they're added one on top of the other and they're so easy, it's always easier to make the next one after the first one. And then the third one after the second one. And the fourth one after the third one. And it's so easy to make those compromises. And then eventually we find ourselves in the middle of Sodom, surrounded by a mob, and no good choices in front of us. And we go, what do I do? And how did I get here? Well, there's a way out for Lot now by the mercy, by just strictly by the mercy of God and the prayer of his uncle. There's a way out. But it's going to be a costly way out. And he's going to lose absolutely everything he has, including his daughters. Before it's over. Now, what if when Lot was sitting there outside his uncle's tent discussing where he would go? Fifteen years earlier. What if someone had told him about this terrible night in Sodom and said, Lot, be careful what choice you make today because there's this terrible night in Sodom ahead of you in your future. I'm sure he would have gone, well, not me. I'm just going down where I can raise my cattle and get, you know, get good food for my cattle. I mean, I'm not going there. I'm not going to end up there. I can stop before I get there. It's a lot harder to stop, isn't it, than we think it is once we started downhill. 
So at any rate, Lot goes out and he begins to to try to compromise with these guys. He says, this is the compromise. Okay? He knows compromise. This guy knows how to compromise. Well, at first, he's very clear. Do not act wickedly. He's very clear about what they intend. He's put the law, he's put, you know, he's drawn a line in the sand here. So this is wickedness. Don't do wickedness. Don't act wickedly. But Lot has a crisis. And Lot's crisis is that he has in front of him a situation and a sinful, wicked situation. And the only way he can figure to get out of this sinful, wicked situation is by another sin. And the reason for that is because through, through years and years of compromise, Lot's moral compass has been broken, as one commentator says. And so he says to the men, I have my two daughters here. Now, I know we shake our heads and we go, Lot, what's wrong with you? But I'll be honest with you, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it may be appalling to us what Lot does here, but it shouldn't surprise us. Lot has been sacrificing his family for 15 years. Lot's been sacrificing his family since he first left Abraham and went down into the cities of the plain. This has been the habit of his life for the last 15 years. That he put his own self-interest and he put his own well-being and he put his own concerns and his own comfort and his own wealth ahead of the well-being of his children and his wife. And now here we are 15 years later, he's still making the same choices. Now he knows it's a horrible choice. He knows it's a terrible thing. I'm sure he does. But he just doesn't see anything else to do. Because he's been so accustomed to compromise in certain areas of his life that he can't see any way around it. And so he's going to throw his daughters to the dogs. How did you get here, Locke? One compromise at a time. Now do you see why as I studied this passage this week, I was so convicted and so filled with a righteous fear What can happen in my life if I just keep making those compromises that seem so innocent or maybe even so necessary? You know, and I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question, but put yourself in Lot's shoes here. What would you have done? What are your options at this point? Now, I'm not suggesting that his only option was to throw his daughters to these beasts. But that's how it looks, doesn't it? That's how it looks. The only way to save these guys is to sacrifice his daughters. 
I don't know what Lot should have done at this point, but there's one thing he probably could have done that might have helped. Maybe he shouldn't even have gone outdoors. Maybe he should have just said to his wife and to his two daughters and to those men, family, we need to pray. He didn't know that he had messengers from God sitting in his own living room ready to deliver him. He didn't know that. And I don't know if it would have changed any of the rest of the story. But at least he would not have stooped to that depth of offering his daughters as a sacrifice to these animals outside his door. And I can't help but wonder if the decision that his daughters eventually make in the cave a few days later that we'll read and study about, which is equally as ugly as what we're looking at now. I cannot help but wonder if the decision they reached, that filthy, wicked decision they reached in the cave, was not in part a product of what they heard their father do this night in Sodom. And now things can't get any blacker, any uglier. it's, It's a horrible picture, isn't it? And I'm sorry we have to talk about it. But God has put it here for a reason. It can't get any blacker and it can't get any darker than this. And at this moment of pitch black darkness, the saving hand of God reaches out and rescues Lot. Why? I offer you two reasons. One is, God does not treat the righteous like He treats the wicked. And with all of Lot's mistakes and all of his failures and all of his sin and all of his compromise, He's still one of God's. And God, through His messengers, reaches out through that door and grabs that man and pulls him back into safety. And the other reason is because his uncle was praying for him. His uncle was praying for him. Now, through our whole talk this morning, we've been talking about Lot as he related to us, but let me just change just for a moment here at the end. Maybe you know a lot. Maybe you know somebody like Lot. And maybe they're going through their terrible night in Sodom right now as we speak. Will you be like Abraham? And will you pray for them? And if you do, will you have confidence that God, in spite of all the mistakes these ones we love have made, that God will reach out His hand and pull them in the door to safety? Because we have discovered about God that He will not treat the righteous like He treats the wicked. Well, the story gets worse before it gets better, folks. So hang on, it won't be easy. But these are important things for us to think about. Okay? Next week we'll go on.